welcome to The Straw Hat with Rabbi David Wolkenfeld and Rabbinate Goldie Guy. We are the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. So we are recording on Monday, February 7th, which is the 6th of Adar, 6th of Adar Rishon. We can talk about the significance of that date uh, uh, later on. Uh, but uh, it's a Monday after a very uh, full full weekend and, and a very full week. It was a, um, a weekend and Shabbos with lots of, um, like, you know, people in the shul um, after some weeks with very few people in the shul. Mm-hmm. Um, thank God the, the Omicron surge seems to be uh, rapidly departing uh, Chicago and more people are back in shul, which is always encouraging uh, to see. And we had a kiddish and more kids programming and stuff. And it's just nice to, to you know, to see folks out and about and interacting with, with one another. Yeah. And uh, nice to have so many kids up on the bima for Adon Olam. It's very nice to, yes, yes, that's a very nice metric, right? The, mm-hmm. the number of lollipops distributed... Uh, <laughs> Uh, each week is a, is a very good metric of uh, communal health and resilience. That's uh, uh, always nice to see. Um, it was also a very emotionally intense Shabbat. Uh, we had a visitor, uh, Pastor Donovan Price, who works on the South Side, is a street pastor, uh, came to visit. And uh, the genesis of that visit was his outreach to me in a sign of support and solidarity after the wave of anti-Semitic assaults and vandalism up north in West Dutchess Park over the weekend uh, and into last week, early last week, I think it was Saturday, Sunday, Monday, mm-hmm. Tuesday, uh, there were um, a, a spate of, of attacks in various Jewish institutions in West Dutchess Park. There was a school, at, um, the, the Beis Yaakov, and there were two shuls and... Um, Kultuv. Cult, yeah, a, a catering company, right, that were, were targeted uh, and... You know, I think you know each of the incidents in the scheme of things and the historical perspective is mild. But when so many events like that occur in such a short period of time in one neighborhood in our broader community, it's it's very very frightening. And and uh, and and so we reached out. We had a prior prior relationship. We we went to Springfield together. I think in 20, 2017, 2018, I, I don't I don't remember uh, to lobby for uh, more state funding for security grants for religious institutions. <laughs> so that's how we met. That's sort of the context in which we met. Uh, and uh, we, you know, we've been a little bit in touch over social media in the years since then. And, and so that was, you know, so sort of looking for, I had been sort of open to and talking about, uh, you know, some sort of collaboration. And, and this was, you know, he, he reached out and that, that was in a very, very meaningful, uh, me- meaningful way. Um, so, so he came to our shul and, uh, after Kiddush, he, people gathered and he spoke and he shared a little bit about, he expressed the solidarity that when Jews are under attack, he felt the need to stand mm-hmm. with the Jewish community in, in a synagogue, right? To sort of put his body where our bodies are and, and show his support and that he's standing with us. And then he shared about his work and, and his work I found incredibly, uh, uh, just poignant, gripping, you know, tragic, uh, what he does. He's, uh. I think he kind of invented. Yeah, you know, when I uh, when I spoke to him about it, he talked about it being his calling. I asked him what brought him into the work, and that's the those are the words that he used is that he felt called to do this work. You know, ministering, pastoring to people on the scene of violent trauma on the South Side, but I guess throughout Chicago. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting. Yeah, I think that's uh, you know you speak to rabbis about why, why they do what they do. Yeah. They say speak to Jewish educators why they do what they do. It's like well, that's I have this passion for this, and I yeah. here's my professional <laughs> goals, and I you know you know it speaks to certain certain types of Christian mm-hmm. clergy. It's it's I was called to you know like there's a yeah we talk about calling too. You know I, I remember talking about it in in Maharat Nishivat Maharat, but it's just it's so interesting that people's callings can be so wildly different even within the same. Kind of career path. Some people are called to the hospital. Some people are called to the synagogue. Some people are called to Hillel work, and he's called to the street. Yeah, yeah. Is- he, he he said he shared that he you know wasn't he didn't originate this form of uh, pastoral support. He it's a model that existed in England and that he I guess brought to Chicago. That he uh, he is notified with you know within minutes of a shooting, and he is on the scene usually within twenty minutes of somebody being shot in Chicago, and so he's there yeah. praying alongside victims of violence. He's praying alongside grieving, surviving family members after victims of violence. Um, He's mediating between cops and and people who are... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, very, very, it's, I think it's very holy work and very special work. And, and, and I, I told him that, you know, he came to us and showed his solidarity. And I think we have to show our solidarity with, with him and his community. I think that's part of uh, what it means to be an urban Orthodox congregation. I've spoken about this here and there over the Almost decade that I've that I've lived here, I, I think it's important for our shul not to be a uh, like a lifestyle shul. It's not. Um, I, I think there's no there's a little few. And there are synagogues in urban neighborhoods where like, you pass through on your way to you know like a life in the suburbs. And like <laughs> if that's what people choose to do, like we're happy to be a Jewish resource for as many months or years that you happen to live here. But I think our shul can aspire to more than that to actually make a difference in our neighborhood and in our community and in our city. That we take our urban setting and location uh, as uh, in a serious way, and that it's it, that's uh, the genre of Orthodox shul that we can kind of uh, exemplify as an urban Orthodox congregation. I think that means partnering with other people of goodwill mm. and standing with them and partnering with them in, in in doing good work in our city. Right. It's also just heartening to see, right, that we're on you know Donovan Price's radar. Right. He cares about what's happening in our community, and he's looking out and seeing not just what immediately faces him and what's going on in his community and the work that he's called to do, but he's also looking out and saying what's happening in other faith communities like ours. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's it's just totally. a, it's a call to say it's yes. mutual, right? We we, we want to care. We want to also yes. know what's going on. Yeah. It's, it's that's actually really a really important point. One of the ways that social media distorts your perception of the world is that there's an algorithm that's choosing mm-hmm. what to show you based on your prior behavior, what it thinks is going to generate more profit for the social media platform <laughs> by increased engagement. And so you tend to see things that will like upset you a lot, or maybe you'll see things that will you'll agree with a lot, that'll generate a lot of emotion and connection, but it's not an accurate um, scanning of what's happening in the world, what people are saying. And so this is very, very striking. You know, when uh, the synagogue was... Um, the hostages were taken in Texas. Yeah. Uh, sorry, three weeks ago. Seems like a oh, you know <laughs> three weeks. Whatever it was, right? <laughs> um, last month, uh, there was this you know set this like this. A lot of people I was in, were, was interacting with and saw their um, response. The Jews are so alone. We're so isolated. Nobody else is talking about this. Jews are talking about this. Mm-hmm. Nobody else is talking about this. Why aren't our Gentile you know friends saying anything right now? And like, uh, let's the Seder, like that. That's a truth out there that like Jews were feeling something that others weren't feeling, and that's. Uh, that's like partially natural. It's also partly problematic that we needed a little bit more solidarity. It's also true that there were a lot of really wonderful people who were saying, like, and making statements and right. and trying to demonstrate their solidarity with our community. But we didn't yes. see it because we're just in our social media bubbles yes. that we can that we built ourselves, um, and and so we don't always see it. So I think it's just you know we're not alone, and and we there are good people who 
um, feel our pain and stand with us when, when we're suffering. And that's, that's remembered. I, I spoke about that Shabbos morning that, that, that didn't happen in other periods of Jewish history. Like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. no Christian clergy ever visited my grandparents' shul in Nuremberg. Uh-huh. <laughs> didn't happen. No, no Christian clergy went to the shuls in Kishniev, you know, to show their solidarity. And, and since it happens here, that really does create potential for something much, much uh, better to, to occur in the future. So we try to learn a little bit of Torah and say Kaddish Rabbanan between Mincha and Mariv uh, at the shul. And uh, over the years, there have been all sorts of topics uh, that have been explored and learned together uh, in that setting. And currently, uh, we are I, I am teaching from a, a volume of Shailor Shuvot, Halachic Questions and Answers, by uh, Ravioni Rosenzweig, who is a... Uh, I don't know, he's probably younger than I am. He's certainly not much older than I am, but he's published... A number of like really um, impressive halachic books. It's very a very humbling experience to read such a well written book uh, by someone who is not an elderly man, you know, right? <laughs> but is a uh, someone uh, young. Uh, and uh, and I've interacted with him a few times in person. He's a really sweet, sweet person and a really good person. Um, his most recent project is halacha and mental health, which is incredibly mm-hmm. important. And he's publishing halachic essays on that topic and mm-hmm. books on that topic, which he's trying to get published also in English translation. So he's you know somebody whose name I hope we'll all be hearing a lot more of uh, in the coming uh, months, in the coming years. Yeah, if you uh, don't follow him on Facebook, you should. Uh, he actually has published some, he publishes sometimes on, his, on that yes, platform as yes, well. And it's yes. a good way to be able to, he makes himself very, very available to people who see that he is active in the in the realm of mental health and halakha and he's like he makes himself available as a resource yes correct he so, uses facebook in a very effective way to yes. disseminate torah and disseminate really compassionate halakha guidance and um uh yeah uh, i definitely uh if you're on facebook he's a, he's he's somebody worth following uh, mm-hmm. for to get you, you yeah. can form your own relationship with with him and to his torah and it's like readily available yeah so so we have that's not a topic that we've not been dealing with mental health. The, I mean, the, the three volumes that of his... That book just came out. Shailu, yeah, yeah. His, older, his, older, his first book is a three-volume set of Shailu Chivot covering all, all four uh, sections of Shulchan Aruch. And we've uh, been spending a few weeks uh, and, you know, a few minutes uh, each day reading through a tshuva uh, that he responded to about a uh, young, young man, a bar mitzvah kid who had mild dyslexia. Uh, this boy couldn't read Torah um, because of his dyslexia, he could, however, memorize the, the Torah portion. He could he lane by memory, but he couldn't lane by reading. And the question is: Is that is that permissible? Generally, you need to read the, the Torah reading from a Sefer Torah, uh, and it's not valid if you don't. Um, uh, but but is is there room for for leniency here? He goes through several different um, analyses, you know, because we also have a tradition that the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur would read by heart from one of the sections of the Torah that he read, rather than make everyone around him wait to roll, you know, the, uh, to a different section. So we have to, so what, what, what made that possible? Uh, what, what justified that leniency? And could that be relevant uh, here? And there are a couple of different ideas I thought that are really uh, kind of interesting. It seemed, you know, one, one idea that he, um, that he raises, which I thought was really, really interesting, is that perhaps this entire um, distinction between you know, the written Torah that should be read from a scroll and the oral Torah that should be you know, taught orally without being consigned to writing whatsoever. Um, it should be each genre of Torah should be kept, written Torah and oral Torah should be kept separate. Uh, he, we know that that distinction broke down because we know that the oral Torah 
was was written down, right? That's that's uh, famous uh, like turning point in Jewish history that uh, mm-hmm. Rabbi Nasi organized the Mishnah. He was worried the Torah would be forgotten, and then ultimately uh, the Oral Torah was like written down. We we encounter the Mishnah, the Talmud. The, the Midrashic uh, traditions as books, right? They're yes, printed. that's the other topic I'm teaching in, in between Menchamarev is a written uh, right, right, book. <laughs> right, right, right. Rabbi reading is, is teaching Mishnah, and you're not teaching it by heart. Not you're, Balpen, Yeah, right. you're from a book, right? So so we encounter all, both the written and the old Torah, we encounter as, um, as in written form, and, and we understand, like, the, the way that the Talmud understands that shift is that the oral Torah would be forgotten, or the, the concern was it would be forgotten. So eight la so we, we, we do what's necessary under emergency circumstances to make sure the Torah survives. And Rav Yoni Rothenzweig says, well, if it's permissible to consign the oral Torah to writing, which we all concede happened thousands of years ago, hmm. maybe it's also permissible to consign the written Torah to oral uh, recitation. Maybe you could read Torah about that. So I thought it was like a really creative idea. Uh, ultimately, the, the, the point that he feels most... Uh, I think relevant for the tshuva is that uh, there are a number of, of Rishonim, a number of medieval commentaries who say that the uh, concern from reading Torah by heart is that it will appear as though there's something wrong with the Sefer Torah. Mm. In general, we're really worried about you know doing something that makes it look as though there's a mistake or something, some pugum, some mm-hmm. gam in the Sefer Torah. Uh, but that's why generally, you know, if we the wrong Torah scroll gets brought out, we don't go back and put it we away and get the right one, we roll it, right? Because uh, if you, you don't want to make it appear as though there's something wrong with that Torah scroll. Um, but here, no one's going to have that mistaken perception because everyone knows, oh, it's a Rebbe Mitzvah Like, if he, he's just not good at laning. You know, like, he's, he's, he's an experience. Mm. You know, they'll think, okay, he's, he's doing it this way because he's an experience as a laner. No one's going to think, oh, there's things wrong with this Torah scroll. Why is he looking up instead of down? Uh, and especially in this community where this kid and his family are members, uh, right, or, or maybe they'll just actually know, right? Yeah, he'll know him himself that he has this dyslexia, learning, and then, yeah, yeah. Ish, right, this is his, the way that he needs to, to recite the Torah reading. They know he has dyslexia, and therefore there's no... Precisely, precisely. And Ravioni Rosenzweig then concludes by saying that we should search for solutions to enable people to participate more. Like, that is the, good, the job of halakhic scholars and people mm-hmm. in religious leadership positions is to find ways to be inclusive because landing for your bar mitzvah is, you know, an important... Um, like thing that people do, right? To you know, to connect them to Jewish tradition and to the community and to mitzvot, and we want that's a good thing. We want to encourage that. Mm-hmm. And uh, if all the other you know kids his age are doing it and he's not, like that would be could be really painful for him. And we want to avoid that as much as possible. So there's a you know there's like substantial grappling with sources in this tshuva. He yes. doesn't just say it's not just a oh let's be inclusive, you know yada yada yada. It's all fine, right? It, uh, you know it's. Um, a very like serious reckoning with the relevant halachic sources and going back to the passage in the Talmud and as it's analyzed by the Rishonim, um, et cetera. But there, it's not a um, he's not engaging in this scholarship, you know, as a as a robot, you know, as a neutral, uh, right? There's a bias, and that bias is towards inclusion and compassion and you know. There's and, always a bias in tshuva. Well, <laughs> I, I I don't disagree with you. I, in fact, I agree with you. There's a bias in tshuva. Right, that's I, what people. Right, that's why it's. Right, it's not a negative thing that you're stating. He has a goal, right, of more yeah. inclusivity. Of right, it's a, it's a positive thing. I, I mm-hmm. yes, I agree, and, mm-hmm. I, and I'm sorry if I was, that wasn't clear. I absolutely, <laughs> I absolutely agree, and and that that bias is is important. I think it's nice that he and helpful that he like shows his yes. cards and shares the bias yes. because that's also teaching Torah. Like he's telling yes. us. Um, these are the values. I, I mean, because you know somebody else. Could, these are the values, and they're borne out by serious sources, yes. source analysis. Right. right. So it's, it's both parts. It's that the 
the values is backed up by very, very rigorous and comprehensive, mm-hmm. um, like work, doing the work. He does the work. He doesn't just like say the values. He does the work. Yeah. Uh, and by naming the values, he's also allowing us to, because somebody else could, could approach this and say, no, actually, you know, in our congregation, like really meticulous laning is like a real value of our community. And, mm-hmm. and you know, maybe we pay a professional balcore or, mm-hmm. you know, we don't let every bar mitzvah boy read his whole parsha because we have really high standards. That's how we show our love of Torah and love. We're cultivating the skill in our community. And mm-hmm. you got to, you know, uh, you know, they were like, that was, uh, you know, at, um, I could, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, at least at least years ago, uh, they at, at Gush, at the yeshiva, they didn't allow like Shana Aleph guys to lane. Uh, really? <laughs> uh, maybe like the end of your first year. You have to, if you were there for a year and you're like, you pass like the, you know, the, the audition, you know, maybe they would like add you to the rotation. But like, so that's, wow. that's, that's, also, that's, that's compromising the inclusivity, pressure. but it's, um, <laughs> it's expressing other values. So I think yes. there's something helpful in a post-ex showing his or her cards and saying, these are the values that were orienting me towards finding a solution to this uh, situation. But Again, you got to show the work. You got to show the work. It's also really important. So uh, we're on to another tshuva of his, and now now we're learning about what happens if you need. Uh, also related to Torah reading, if uh, you know you need you need to give an aliyah to two ladies, you know, because there's a simcha. It's like a levy, you know, maybe somebody who's a levy family is getting married, and so mm. the father and the uncle all need aliyot, and maybe it's a yard site also the same Shabbos. So what do you do when you you know you got to accommodate too many ladies? So how do you how do you solve that problem? <laughs> so that's what we're. That's a shorter tshuva, so we'll finish that. It won't take us so long to finish that, but that's what we're looking at at now. Mm. So it's interesting that you brought up a tshuva that talks about kind of the the line between Tarasha Bichtav and Tarasha Baal Pen, putting a, 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 um, formally written words into and saying it's okay that it can be Baal Pen sometimes, right? That Tarasha Bichtav might be able to be read aloud in certain circumstances by heart. And the other way around that you mentioned about when we had to write down the Torah Baal Pen for, for the purpose of preserving our traditions, preserving our Torah, um, uh, the teaching, uh, one of the teachings that um, I've taught in my recent series on Rabbi Nachman, um, I think also talks about this line of between formalistic practice and um, praying out of a siddur, praying out of the set series of prayers that are dictated by our tradition and the prayer that comes from the heart um, and how those practices that the baal peh, the, the stuff that comes out of the heart can really sit beside um, the prayer that's written and prescribed from the Sidur uh, in a very natural way. One of the Torot, one of the teachings of Rabbi Nachman that we um, explored in the first class uh, was Torah 25 on Hitbodedut, on the practice of oh. uh, meditation. Uh, I'm not sure if there's a better translation of Hitboded. Hitboded comes from the root um, Boded, Badad, being alone, uh, to seclude oneself, to, uh, to uh, find a quiet space to quiet oneself, and to speak to God. And that spiritual practice described by Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Nachman thinks that Hitbodedut should be part of your spiritual toolbox as a Jew, right? You should daven three times a day from the Sidur, you know, as, as is prescribed. And also um, make a set time every week to talk to God in this heat, manner of Hitbodedut. So this is how uh, Rabbi Nachman talks about what, what is this practice. Um, he says, uh, Hitbodedut is the highest level, which means to set aside an hour or more, okay, to seclude oneself wow. in a wow. room or in a field, to express yourself in dialogue with your creator, with claims, words of favor, to request and supplicate before God, that God should bring you close to God's service. Mm. And that you should pray, Rabbi Nachman says you should pray in your own language, 
he mentions German, but for us that would be in English. And he says, because it's in, in Hebrew, it's really hard to express yourself. It's really hard to actually formulate what's going on in your heart uh, before God. And you should speak what's in your heart, whether it's regrets or tshuva, wanting to do uh, to repent and to uh, make amends with God, to supplicate, to ask God, please bring me closer. And Rabbi Nachman says you should do this every day, not, not only once a week, but every day. Uh, at a designated time, just like your davening practice, right, is at a certain time every single day. So too, you should do this hitbo to do it. And sometimes, says Rabbi Nachman, you won't have anything to say at all. And that silence is also prayer. There's the moments of silence that you stand before God without any words. And these are your own words, right, of what's on your mind. You just stand there and you become stuck. That silence is the is the prelude to prayer, oh. but in, in other ways, he says that it can also be translated into a cry, right? If you're so, if you're silent and stuck and you say, I have nothing that I can actually ask God for, I have nothing that I can say, wow. I don't have the words, you should cry, uh, cry to God about the distance between where you are now and where you'd like to be, what you want now and what you'd, the, is a more uh, a perfect desire in service of God. Um, does he, yeah. uh, does he, share um like a source for this did he like make this up like where where does he derive this jewish you know practice of okay, spontaneous so <laughs> yeah there is a source that that might back rabbi nachman up in that particular torah it doesn't doesn't describe a source it's mm-hmm. not like rabbi nachman doesn't go and say uh Mars, it says in the pasuk it's not it's not as structured as that to say and and mm-hmm. here's where the torah says it uh, the gemara teaches in avodah zarah um daf hamud aleph on 5a says that um, this is something Chazal taught about the verse, who would give that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and keep all my commandments that it might be good for them uh, and, and with their children forever. And in a later stage, it says the Gemara, Moshe says to the Jewish people, you're kfuye tova, right? You're, uh, you're not grateful for what God has offered you. When the Holy One, blessed be he, said to the Jewish people, who would give that they had a heart as is always, right? God says, I, I wish that B'nai Israel would would align their desires with mine. I wish they would just be in line with what I wanted, with, with God's vision for the world, with a more perfect vision for being Jewish, right? For being servants of God. So when God said, me, Tain, who would give that, that B'nai Israel would have such a loyal heart? B'nai Israel should have said, okay, give us that heart, right? You're, you want us to be, to be in line with you. You want our hearts and our intentions to be aligned with yours, God, so okay. Show us how to do it. Make it so that it's true, right? And that's that's kind of an opening um, there in the Gemara of this of Chazal even saying where there was room there where God said, "I wish they were more in line with me," and we should have said, "Okay, make it happen. Make it so." I, I'm I'm too far, right? I know there's a distance that pains me. God help me, right? That there's something there of, of opening up with your own words and saying. I recognize the distance mm. here, right? That cry of saying, I'm not perfect, and here's my... Re- I have another question. Are there people who, who do this? Like, uh, breast lovers, <laughs> I presumably do this, right? Uh, anyone else? Like, do you, know, do you know communities of practitioners who... Do I know personal practitioners? So I could say, listen, like, when I first learned about this concept when I was studying in Migdalos, um, I, I had a Rabbi Nachman class, and there was also a Hasidut uh, overview of Hasidut. Who taught that? We, do you remember? Of course. Okay. Oh. <laughs> These are my rebay, and this okay. is where I go back to. Uh, by the way, there are lots of resources online. So one of my te- my teacher, uh, my uh, for Rabbi Nachman was uh, Rabbi Don Hauser, who's a Gushnik who teaches Hasidut. It's 
Mm-hmm. Like he's in with all the Gushniks and he Great. teaches Hasidut and Gemara, right? Yeah. He's also right. He's a okay. Gushnik. Yeah. <laughs> but he's got this heart and this voice, and he's like so, he's like the most gentle person you'll ever meet. Like Wonderful. once I was at his house for Shabbat, and his kiddush was about. 15 minutes long, but it was like wow. the, most, the sweetest wow. poem I've ever, ever heard in the world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. Right? So there are people in the world practicing this, but uh, in in those classes, right, we were encouraged to experiment. Yeah. Uh, and I've seen that with other Jewish meditation teachers or Jew, uh, teachers of Hasidut. Um, I had a class also with Rabbi Dr. Aviezer Cohen um, at Migdalos, who taught, uh, it was more of an overview course, but as part of those classes we practiced um i had another teacher who also encouraged us to practice as part of our uh, i would go out we would find places to seclude ourselves on campus like we'd have to find a place where we knew no one would be passing by and it would be nighttime and then we'd all go into our corners and practice talking to god and the reason that i that that i wanted to teach this as part of my rabbi nachman classes is because it's a spiritual practice that's really stayed with me it's mm. really changed yeah. the way that i relate to god you're bearing the lead so you are a, you are a community <laughs> of uh, you're a practitioner i'd say like yeah right there are, there are practitioners where you find them that that's the community it's not they're okay. all in one place it's all right that, but, it's um, you, but you 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 are amongst them i mean it's it, it opened up my sikha with god for the rest of my life that i could just speak beautiful. to god as if god was my companion as if god was a constant presence and mm-hmm. um and so, sometimes that you know, can be more powerful than, than set tefillah as well, right? It's, it's, it, I, I'd say I emphasize that Rabbi Nachman would say it's part of your, right, your toolkit. I don't know if you'd use those words, but, right, it goes alongside, it complements, right, the Torah Shebikhtav of the Siddur itself is that you learn how to actually be in conversation with God all the time um, and that you walk with God. Um, so I do, I do try to practice this. I don't have a set practice of, you know, once a day, once a week, um, it's more of a way of uh, walking around in the world. So that's why I taught that. And um, other classes also come from teachings, right? Having only three classes on Rabbi Nachman is, is not, not very much. <laughs> There's a lot of Torah out there uh, of Rabbi Nachman. So I'd be happy to learn with anyone who'd like to, to explore more. But uh, all the topics are ones that really resonate uh, with me personally and things that I've taken from those and carried with me in my, my worldview. Um, yeah. so, and, and, and just to clarify, I guess, this um, this last of the three Reb Nachman classes is this Wednesday. Yes. Uh, and so our, our somebody pre- who missed the first two... There are recordings They can watch them on, on, the Shul's, on the Shul's YouTube channel, but do they have to watch them before they come no, to No, the, they do they, not. Uh, so the first one was on uh, Heat Bodedut, this practice of, of talking to God. The second one was on Nigun, which again is a very broad oh, yeah. topic in Rabbi yeah, Nachman yeah. Of, of melody and the power of melody and, and bringing yes. together worlds and, and opening doors to conversation with people, with God, same... A similar thing, right? And where melodies yeah, come from, yeah. how we source the melody, right? It was all, it's all really interesting. I actually made it when I was in a, I was a religion major in undergrad and I took a class in comparative mysticism and there were lots of, lots of other mystics in the world who talked about there being music of the world that we had wow. to attune ourselves to, mm. to be in line with the universe, to create harmony, to bring order to the world. And so it's very, that's also something that, that, um, that draws me to it. It feels very human. Mm-hmm. It feels very human. It's 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 Jewish language for it. Rabbi Nachman, right, certainly was not, uh, he has a lot of followers now, right? But he wasn't, Hasidut in general was seen as like a revolution, uh, something that was upending the order of things. Like I said, because it was taking like what was normal and like here's tefillah and we have a set order and we know what we're supposed to do and you're telling me to do something different? You're telling me there are different, deeper ways to reach God? What does that mean? 
And why are you trying to ruin everything for everybody else? <laughs> um, they, they didn't say it in that exact manner. Um, but there was a lot of pushback because it's pretty revolutionary to say you can turn to speak to God in whatever language yeah. you choose. Um, but that's what's so powerful about Amazing. it. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so the third class, I, I, I haven't uh, settled on a topic exactly. Oh. Yeah. I, I left it open to my students. I said, please tell me what you're interested in learning. There's a, he talks about dance and the power of movement and... and and dynamics of dancing as, as, as a metaphor for life uh, and, and the energies of life and our dynamics with other people. That might be the, the topic, but there's lots to explore. When are you going to decide? How are you going to decide? How am I going to? There's, there's so much out okay. there. Well, everyone is well. Everyone, all the listeners, there's so much out there. All the listeners there. are welcome to join you in, um, you know, live uh, Wednesday evening uh, and or to listen to the recordings of the classes. On and the to YouTube weigh channel. in before, before weigh Wednesday. Weigh in, yeah. Well, to let me know. They may not, they may not oh, hear the, this the podcast. podcast there will be very yeah. little time. Hopefully, they'll decide right. before Hopefully they hear Hopefully, I will. By the time um, this podcast is released, you'll have a topic. Uh, oh, I'll have a topic. Maybe I'll, I'll intuit what, what the people want. <laughs> maybe, maybe. hope so. No, lots of people have been coming to this. That's it's great. Real, I've, I've, I've just, it's very interesting to me to see people drawn to this. Isn't uh, it? Yeah. yeah. I'm, I, didn't know that I could share. So Great. I'd love to share this with more people. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. Great. In Dafyomi, we're in Moikatan, which uh, has like two major, major topics. One is Cholamoed, um, the um, intermediate days of the festivals, and the other is mourning. Uh, and some, you know, so those are the two topics of Moikatan, mm. of, um, the main topics, and sometimes they coincide. How do you mourn on Cholamoed, right? Yes. Uh, so what, what are the, today we, we've been, we've been uh, dealing most, most uh, detailed with, with the, the myths of Kriya, of tearing a garment uh, in mm. response to someone dying. We, mm. You and I spoke a little bit about the, the symbolism of that, of that mitzvah and what it um, demonstrates. Yeah, I, I guess I would... I, I, Sort of inspired by the daf to make an editorial comment that uh, God forbid, you know, after 20 years when somebody uh, dies and 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 you have the obligation of mourning, that you should do the mitzvah of kriya. It's like a, it's worth uh, it, it's worth uh, tearing a jacket, tearing a shirt. Yeah. Uh, to do the mitzvah right and to express something really real that that you've actually suffered a. Um, a real loss. Like we say it as a metaphor, suffering a loss. It's almost like it's like a euphemism, suffering a loss. Like someone died, okay? Yeah. And and um, the loss of your shirt is, is actually a pretty small thing mm-hmm. in the context of, of, of losing a loved one, of, of the death of a loved one. Uh, and I think I thought something... it was also a channeling of like a destructive impulse after mm-hmm. experiencing the death of a loved yeah, one. Yeah, Gamaran Shabbos talks about that, right? Mm-hmm. About uh, right, right. containing your mourning, right? And also Moe Katan talks about it. it it was in the twenties somewhere. Right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you're not allowed to um, mourn more than than is necessary. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to like luxuriate in in the sadness and the deep intense feelings of 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 the grief. Um, and so I think more uh, our mourning practices give a container for it and says here's here's That's a way right. to express right. it. And this is like the destructive impulse of I'd like I'd like to s- smash the world into smithereens now that I don't have or or this or, loved or, one. or 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 harm myself. Or right. I, the the yes. Torah explicitly says yes. you're not allowed to make gashes yes. in your body uh, as a part as an act of mourning, yes. which is expressing somehow that like I am less. My life is. Is, is diminished, um, like my own grief. body, right? Right, it's and just uh, and the Torah says no. You yeah. have to, like like it's, this is it, right. You, so this is like a sanctioned way of expressing that kind of destructive impulse of like self destructive yeah, impulse. Sanctioned, sanctioned, but within bounds, right? That exactly. It's, it's, it's worth exactly. It's you know like it, you know so I I, I you know it, it's it's very common. It's very in, it's common in in like sort of less orthodox uh, circles for people just to tear a ribbon, which they pin to their shirt, mm-hmm. which I guess is sort of evoking the the, the kriya. Mm-hmm. But I I, um, I I just I think there's something that you're you deny yourself 
by not tearing the garment, you're, you're, it, it's um, like, like the loss, it's more than just a torn ribbon. Like the loss that you endured with the death of a loved it's one. It's a tear is, over your heart. It's a tear, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a real, it's, a real um, it's more substantial than that. And I, I think people should, uh, um, but yeah, separate from the mitzvah, you know, people should do mitzvah, but mm. I, Jews should do mitzvah. But also I think there's a lot of psychological wisdom yes. in, in all the mitzvah of mourning. And uh, I feel, uh, not, not like I feel in, it's not about being like judging other people. It's just about it's about just compassion for people who are denying from themselves the resources that Jewish tradition provides to help people uh, mourn in a very psychologically astute way. Right to really express the grief in a very visceral way, and, and then gradually in stages to, mm-hmm. to overcome that. Right. So it's, yes. Um, um, hmm. I, I remember once hearing from Rabbi Weinreb, who was. Uh, he was the executive director of the OU for many years, or summer years, and before that, for even more years, he was a congregational rabbi in Baltimore, and he also has training as a psychologist. So hmm. often his Torah teachings has a lot of psycho- insights, psychological insight. He wrote a book, actually, on like little essays on the Parsha with a psychological uh, like kind of angle. And, um, so he, I once heard him share a story of um, an occasion when somebody in his... Orthodox shul had, you know, siblings who were not Orthodox, and they were all going to be sitting Shiva together, and they were going to be observing Shiva in a more sort of Orthodox kind of uh, vibe, right? Meaning they would be, the mourners would be sitting, and they would be, people would be quiet, and they would come Mm -hmm. in and not speak until the mourners spoke, and they would ask questions about the, right? Whereas in, like, sort of broader Jewish community, a Shiva home can sometimes, like, have a ambiance of, like, a cocktail party, you know? There's, like, refreshments, and there's catering, and there's, like, that might be different also from Ashkenaz to Sephardic homes. That's interesting. Uh, this was not, this was no, I don't think this was a Sephardic yeah. uh, But like setting. in Sephardic homes, there's like a lot of like food and there's a lot of... Yeah. Right? So he, he convened the family before and said like, you know, this is, uh, you know, it's going to be a little different from what you might expect. Yeah. This is mm-hmm. how it's going to be. And, and um, mm-hmm. after the Shiva, the, the family had a chance to speak to him again. They were incredibly appreciative of having been given the space to actually be sad and, and, and to have a somber yeah. ambiance in... In the Beit Avel, in, in this, in the Shiva home. So yeah. I, I think throughout Avilut, there's a lot of psychological um, um, wisdom and, and, and realism that uh, like sort of American culture pushes, like get over it and it, hide it. It's also it because and, it developed uh, as mostly minhagim, right? That it's not. It it, it came from a like deep mm-hmm. human resources and human wisdom that mm-hmm. accrued over time. So we are approaching Purim Katan, the minor Purim of Adarishan. So, so what is Purim Katan, and how are we going to celebrate Purim Katan? Are we going to celebrate Purim Katan? Don't say Tachanu. Don't say that, that's, okay. <laughs> that. That's cause for celebration for some people. Okay. Uh, okay. So it's a, it's a, it's like the minorest of minor holidays. It's not even a holiday. It's an echo of a holiday. Yes. I would say right. We have two Adars this year. It's a leap year, a pregnant year. We added extra months to keep our calendar in order. You can, you know, you can do the math. You can do the arithmetic. It all comes out right there. Are, takes 365 and a quarter days for the Earth to go around the sun. It takes uh, only 354 days for there to be 12 lunar months. And so we got to throw in seven out of every 19 years, an extra month, and then they all adds up. And I have not done this arithmetic myself, but I've... But it works. It does work, yes. (laughs) It does indeed work. So we celebrate Purim. Why do we celebrate Purim? I know know, this is like a, you know, sort of a classic topic for... uh, 
you know, explication and, and, and speeches <laughs> and sermons. You know, why do we celebrate Purim in the second Adar and not instead of the first Adar? Gemara says we should link Purim to, to Pesach. And I, I don't know, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm reluctant to say more now because I feel like this, I, you know, we can talk about this for the next, like, you know, next six weeks we can talk about this. Like why, why, why uh, you know, say Why well, do we need to uh, link together the two redemptions, right? The feel, the, to have the, go from the feelings of the redemption that happened in Shushan to the, the local redemption of Shushan, I guess, right? To the more global or national redemption of Pesach. Oh, yeah, I, I, Purim was pretty, I don't know, I think the impression the Gila is that the Jews everywhere in the empire were, were in danger. I that's true. Or, or many places, let's say many places they were in danger, but um, although the Ramban said, right, it's the Ramban and the, and the Ran say that it was, um, I think it's the Ramban quoted by the Ran say that it was not the Jews in Eretz Israel, right, because they, they had the ability to defend themselves yeah, more. I mean, it was a vast yeah, empire, yeah. but I have to imagine there are other Jewish communities yeah, at yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah. But right, so, that it became the, the national Purim. But it was right? an incomplete redemption. That, that's the piece yes. that I think is it was an incomplete redemption. Yes. Right, The end of the story is... Akate Avde Hashverosh Anan. We're still uh, uh, servants under a Hashverosh. As it were. Right? As it were. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're still... Yeah, the, the story ends, we're still victims of a capricious king and we're subject to his whims and later Jewish history shows what that means and what that can look yes. like. Um, so it's, it's a lesser redemption than Pesach, and so we want to link them because, I guess we're linking them because we're saying, we're highlighting the fact it's a lesser redemption. We can't like fully invest in this celebration without reminding ourselves that we're greater redemption still is, in exile. Is, is, is possible and, mm-hmm. and hoped for. And yeah, yeah, that's mm-hmm. sort of part of, part of we the We thank God for the miracles and, and have to actually stop and acknowledge them, but also we keep praying for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Yeah, so. and 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 yet the, the celebr- you know I, I heard Rabbi Riskin say this a long time ago that the that sort of that's why we like the, the drunkenness on Purim is that like we it's that's mm-hmm. an expression of like kind of the sadness of the holiday. There's something tragic about the holiday huh. that um, we end up still servants of Achashverosh. That mm-hmm. the only thing that saves us from total assimilation is anti-Semitism, yeah. right? Like it's you have a totally Mordechai and Esther like. Non-Jewish names, fourth-generation immigrants, like to, you know, totally assimilated at the party of Achashverosh, mm-hmm. eating the non-kosher food, right? And it's it's only anti-Semitism that can mm-hmm. save us from total assimilation, and that the the redemption isn't so full. And so, okay, we'll celebrate, but we'll have to drink a little bit to celebrate because it's there's something really tragic about the whole the whole mm-hmm. episode is kind of tragic. Um, mm-hmm. So let's connect it to connect it to Pesach, right? That's just a, a happier kind of story. On the other hand, Purim is a much more um, it's more relevant kind of redemption story for us, right? Like it's the one of, we still live of the smaller redemptions that we ha- that we recognize. Searching all the for time. God, searching for God without searching without for God the, in the darkness, without the open miracles. The, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's so it's, yeah, yeah. Right. So Purim Katan, though, right? The, that first Adar, it's nothing. It's not, it's not a holiday, okay? It's not a holiday. It's, just, it's telling us. It's telling us Purim comes in a month, uh, and it uh, we don't say Tachin. And don't say Tachin. We don't say Tachin. Okay? And maybe you can eat a hamantashen. You have a hamantashen. Yeah. yeah. You don't have to. Don't have to. You never have to. It's not like matzah. You never have to. You never have to eat matzah. Eating a matzah. Eating matzah is also not, it's also not an obligation. Um, <laughs> Um, okay. Yeah, Rav Soloveitchik had an. He felt that the days that are like derivative, like Purim Katan, you and that you omit Tachner on those days. You you don't omit Tachner on like the 
day before. Right? Right? Like on Shabbos, we don't say Tachan right, on Shabbos. Mincha beforehand. Mm-hmm. We also don't say Shabbos Friday Mincha because it's like the day before. So Rosh Chodesh, mm-hmm. we don't say Tachan We don't say Tachan on like the Mincha before Rosh Chodesh because that's a day that ha- those are days that have an, inherent you know, significance. Correct, inherent kedusha, like the real so the yes. sanctity of the day. Uh, Purim Katan has no inherent it's like sanctity. It's a shadow of a, yeah, something like that. Uh, preface or whatever. It's it's a, it's a derivative <laughs> sanctity. It's not. Echo. It's not. Um, it's not its own day with its own sanctity, its own identity, and so there is no skip tachanun on on the on the mincha before. Um, so mm-hmm. other days like that, Pesach Shein would be a similar day like that, and you can think through whether other examples of that and whether 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 his theories you know fits the evidence. But that was a theory that he uh, promulgated. Yeah, I'm just I, I've never heard the connection going back to one topic ago between the the drunkenness of the Suda and the Hester Panim hiddenness of God uh, yeah. element of the holiday, the aspect of the holiday. I'd never heard of that. Rabbi Riskins shared that he felt that the, that the difference between, you know, like Judaism condemns drunkenness in pretty uh, strong terms. and Also, yet, live sume doesn't have to mean to get drunk. Okay, fine. <laughs> we assume it does, whatever, but we, Judaism condemns drunkenness. He felt the difference between drunkenness versus a more like celebratory and... Jewish form of alcohol consumption is whether you're drinking to express joy, like Kiddush on Arbacosa, the four cups on and Pesach, or if you're drinking to kind of um, like cover up sadness. Uh, And that's a a more, he felt that 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 was like the kind of, that's the drink. No matter how much, like that, that, that's like the type of uh, more problematic, you know, self-medication type of alcohol consumption, which is like kind of inherently problematic and we would limit other than on Purim whereas Arbacosa and Pesach that's like we're joyous we're free we're liberated we're you know, you know the, the four cups lubricate that liberation and, and that's those songs of, of Hallel Purim there is no Hallel on Purim right and you yeah. know the drinking is, is to like kind of allow us to enjoy ourselves um, when fundamentally the story has like a kind of a tragic yeah. tragic um, story no, I've just I've looked into the topic of like where wine is uh, uh, incorporated into Jewish ritual and what the mm. connections are between the two. I don't have a formal uh, like a final thesis on it, okay. but um, there the one other aspect that I'm thinking of when we bring in wine to kind of numb feelings is uh, when we bring someone to execution by the Beit Din. Yeah, did not know that. Yeah, know that. <laughs> huh? It's it's uh, yeah. So I'm trying to find like a source for for that in the. Uh, uh. <laughs> All right. Uh, right. It doesn't fit with everything else that we do, yeah. like the you know, but it's it's. That's really have to be baralamita yafev. Sure, right. It may be yeah. compassionate, but it's interesting. Yeah. To think of halacha actually saying, you know, we recognize that wine can be used to numb mm. feelings. Yeah. And, yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, the other in the Torah, Noach drinking wine, yeah, right? That's yes, also right. That's, that's uh, fairly negatively. Right, like, but he was. What was he doing? He was recreating Gan Eden, maybe, yes, right? Maybe. So he's trying to <laughs> in the literary read of our modern scholars. Yeah, in the literary yes. read of our, you know, of he our was teachers. probably overwhelmed by the destruction of the world in the way that like plants a garden, okay? <laughs> right? Just like he's he's, he's refounding he humanity. Does. He's yes, making he a new is. Garden of Eden, and, he, that, that, yes. and maybe grapes was the fruit in the Eitzadat. So, but that. That fruit gave knowledge. His fruit took away knowledge and took away discernment. Yes. Right. So yes. It's so that's also the dual aspect of wine: is that it both gives and takes away. Right. It's so interesting. Let's think about it. Nix nasiay and yet say sod. Right. That's a, yes, but it is, like it establishes memory for us on Shabbat. Right. It's zachorim uh, Shabbat. The Kaddish show is saying zachorim alayin. You have to remember mm. it on wine, but it also erases our memory. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like the, what we're talking about of like numbing those emotions. So I never figured out what to make of all of it, but there's mm. like real 
deep stuff there of yeah, Chazal's cool. relationship to wine. Oh, very neat. All right, we'll have, to, we'll have to return to this topic. I have uh, a paper. It's like three quarters written. Okay, I'm looking forward to reading it then. No, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it in a future episode. Amazing, amazing. Okay, thank you.